Grace and peace to you, beloved, those of you who gather at the Christ City Church in Washington, D.C. I am thankful, thankful to have been asked by Pastor Matthew and the elders to share a word with you. I am moved by who you are, a multi-ethnic, multi-generational, inclusive church in the heart of Washington, D.C., committed to loving God, loving one another, and loving our neighbors in this city as well as those in need throughout the world. We, the people of Metropolitan African Methodist Episcopal Church, share this vision. And we look forward to deepening relationships for the cause of what is just, what is right, what is beautiful, and what is holy. Let us pray. Lord, as your word is read and proclaimed, be with us that it might not simply take root in our hearts, but in our hands and in our feet, that we might join you as co-creators, co-laborers in the reign and work of God. We pray in the name of Jesus the Christ, who was executed by an empire, an empire strangely similar to our own American empire, but whom you raised in resurrection, glory, and power. We pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Beloved, let me direct your attention to the gospel according to St. Luke, the 19th chapter. And I'll begin reading at verse 45. Luke 19, 45. Then he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling things there. And he said, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people kept looking for a way to kill him. Religious people like us. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were spellbound by what they heard. Verse 45 again, then he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling things there. Today, as we struggle in the midst of so many challenges here, and abroad. From that text, I'd like to preach from the thought, rethinking generosity. It was 1997. I was in my second year of theological preparation for ordained ministry in divinity school. On that particular day in 1997, I was antsy. I felt inadequate, wholly unprepared, and completely, I mean completely, out of my depth. We met at an on-campus restaurant. You know the type. Food and ambiance greatly lacking, but a high convenience factor. You've eaten there. I had been chosen to share a meal with this gentleman, this towering theologian, 
one who had made an impact on generations of scholars and practitioners, it is safe to say that some of you, whether you're a clergy or lay, may indeed have some of his books on your shelves. He was kind, he was cordial, he was courtly, and much to my chagrin, he was curious about me. I mean, genuinely curious. He asked me what I was reading. I was flummoxed because I had prepared and memorized questions for him, never thinking he would be interested in me. But I never got to ask anything I had prepared. He peppered me with questions. He sensed my reticence to answer. He asked again, who are you reading? I said, Howard Thurman. I am reading Howard Thurman's Jesus and the Disinheritance. I became more comfortable, more talkative. I said to him, I love Thurman's question, what does Jesus offer to a people who live with their backs against the wall? He looked at me kindly, but with great concern. I knew Dr. Thurman. I knew his work. I admired him deeply as a man. I admired how he had been shaped by his saintly grandmother, Nancy Ambrose. But as I spoke about Howard Washington Thurman, I felt the atmosphere shifting in that middling, mediocre, bad campus restaurant. But you shouldn't spend much time with Thurman's writing, he said to me. It is not orthodox. He said, people argue about Thurman's Christology. Most say he had a low Christology, meaning his understanding of who Jesus Christ was in relationship to God. Most people say he had a low Christology. But this theologian said Thurman had no Christology at all. He said to me, as I said, that campus restaurant, young man, you should read someone else. A promising seminarian like you should read real theologians. I was shattered, crestfallen. He was the authority. Bill Lamar was not. He was a teacher, a renowned scholar. I was a student. I was young, malleable, and deeply affected. A man whom I admired greatly had said to me that I should not admire another man whom I deeply revered. With one swift rhetorical kick, he overturned my interpretive table. What I had known and thought came crashing to the floor. Christ City, I am learning something, something about the practice of ministry, something about service in God's church. And by ministry, I mean the ministry of lay and clergy. I'm learning something about service, preaching, teaching, doing ministry, serving according to our gifting is far from a static enterprise. As a matter of fact, Stasis is the opposite of ministry. The spirit is constantly blowing us 
into interpretation and reinterpretation. The spirit incessantly moves us toward deeper examination of ourselves, our traditions, our contexts, our very world. The spirit unceasingly nudges us to see what we refuse to see and to acknowledge that which we would rather deny. As I reflect upon what happened when I was 22 in 1997, and I consider that I am now almost 47 years old with nearly 22 years of pastoral experience, I am asking different questions today than I was asking in 1997. I'm asking questions like who has the authority to interpret the text and the world for our community? Who has the authority to tell us what books to read? Who has the authority to judge our theologies and our praxis? I would not handle what happened at that bad campus restaurant today like I handled it in 1997. I gave that towering theologian authority over my life, over what I read, thought, prayed about. I gave him authority then that I would never give to anyone today. I let him stop me from being free, being free enough to read and to interpret as the spirit gave me imagination and insight. I believe, Christ City, that God's spirit is calling us to new interpretations of many things, but to be true to what I labeled this sermon, I believe that God's spirit is calling us to a new interpretation of generosity. Generosity beyond our culture's penchant for atomization and individualization. Generosity beyond merciful responses to deep human pain that only justice can truly address. Generosity beyond being sentimentally moved by the dehumanization of our siblings and the destruction of the planet that sustains us, doing more than feeling bad about the pain of our beloved people in our communities and the pain of the earth. We're being moved beyond sentimentality by God's spirit. We're being moved beyond sweetness, niceness, kindness. Oh, it is such a challenge when we conflate Christ following, Christianity with sweetness, niceness, and kindness. Sometimes following Jesus cannot be sweet, cannot be nice. It is something altogether different. To that end, I want to offer a different take, a spirit-blown interpretive leap, if you will. What Jesus was doing in the temple that day, in driving out those who were selling and buying, may have been one of the most generous acts of his ministry. More generous than healing the sick more generous than feeding multitudes. It may indeed have been the most generous thing that Jesus ever did. This is, beloved, a confrontational 
generosity. Luke's gospel lays out a strange understanding of spirit. That spirit drove Jesus in the fourth chapter to pick a fight with Satan. To pick a fight with evil. Not to just complain and moan and groan about the evil that he saw. The evil that we see. The spirit drives us into confrontation. This is a confrontational generosity. This is a dangerous generosity. Jesus was lynched one week later by religious and imperial powers after having done what he did in the temple. This kind of generosity is attended by ongoing teaching and formation that helps us understand that our confrontational generosity that is driven by the spirit, our dangerous generosity, which risks our own safety and acceptance in our communities, our generosity as the spirit is trying to give us imagination. It can only happen through ongoing teaching and formation. This generosity that Jesus displays, what I contend is generosity in Luke 19, is the kind of generosity that the people in Washington, D.C. are craving. Stay with me. The temple where Jesus did what Luke records is Herod's temple. It was a marvel of architectural brilliance. It sat gloriously atop the Temple Mount, an area of 35 acres. All but priests were forbidden from entering the temple itself. Only men could enter the courtyard closest to the temple. Both men and women could occupy the next court, and Gentiles were able to gather in the court farthest from the temple. Faithful Jews came to the temple from around the world to offer sacrifices at the temple during the Passover, traveling with animals to sacrifice on their long, arduous journeys would have been unwise and impractical. And so, in a very American turn, a market sprang up in the temple to meet the needs of those who would come to offer sacrifices. You know, the market does spring up. Roman currency with its imperial imagery and propaganda could not be used for exchange in the temple. And so the currency exchange market thrived. In other words, when you came into the temple court, you could not use Roman currency. It had to be exchanged for temple currency to buy the animals to be sacrificed. Now, the need for a currency exchange market was real. The trading in and of itself was not evil. The people needed to purchase animals to sacrifice. The people needed to exchange Roman currency for temple currency. The problem arose when religious entrepreneurs found a way to charge exorbitant rates to exchange currency. The offering of the poor, pigeons and doves, was marked up beyond reason, and the people who wanted to worship God could not worship without being exploited. God could not be worshiped without capitalist exploitation. 
The worship of God in this text is tied to the exploitation of the vulnerable. Jesus enters Jerusalem in this account of this story. Jesus enters Washington, D.C., where Christ City and where metropolitan worship, Jesus weeps and he sees how we in our day still entangle exploitation and extraction with worship. Jesus headed straight for the temple and he heads straight for Christ City, straight for metropolitan. He heads to these temples and he confronts. According to my teacher, Luke Acts Scholar, the great homiletician Ron Allen, the spirit drives us into confrontation with evil. Jesus is led by the spirit into the wilderness to confront the devil, the evil without and the voices within. That same spirit drives him from confrontation with the devil in the wilderness to confrontation with the forces of exploitation in the temple. <clears throat> he drives out those who had taken what was necessary and made it a tool of oppression. In our own day with payday lending, the fact that food costs more in poor neighborhoods than it does in wealthy neighborhoods, the fact that there are food deserts, there is exploitation where people take what is necessary for human worship of God, for human existence, and find ways to make it exploitative. The poor must eat, yet food, as I mentioned, unhealthy food is more expensive in the neighborhoods of the poor. People need housing, yet the poor pay more of their income to house themselves than the rest of us. People desire to worship God, yet many churches continue to baptize capitalist excess and domestic and global imperial American overreach. What does generosity look like for us who see these forces? It looks like Jesus. It looks like interrupting this evil. It looks like disrupting this exploitation. Jesus disrupted their commerce as a sign to them and a sign to us that God knows what we are doing under the guise of worship, under the guise of patriotism, under the guise of democracy, under the guise of justice. God knows what we are doing. God sees what we are doing, and God is calling for something different, a different kind of generosity that confronts evil and exploitation. Jesus is calling through this text, I believe, beloved, for a dangerous generosity. Corporations grow richer from the world as it is. The wealthy grow richer from the world as it is. Churches grow wealthy from the world as it is. Luke is clear. We cannot read this text any other way. This kind of generosity, this kind of generosity that interrupts and disrupts systems of oppression both within the church and outside of the church, they cause religious leaders and secular leaders to crank up the machinery of death. 
In the case of Jesus, this type of generosity, setting people free from exploitation, this type of interruption of the commerce in the temple and the commerce outside of the temple caused the people to want Jesus dead, to crank up the machinery of death and crucifixion. I have a problem with how we read this text because most church people like us, most preachers like me read this and say, we would not be those seeking to kill Jesus, but I'm not so certain. Luke, the fourth chapter says that religious church gathering people like us after Jesus preached at home, drove him to the brow of the cliff to throw him off because they did not like the picture of God that he painted, a God who loved Gentiles as well as Jews. I am not so sure that the professional religious like me and the Christians who live high on the cultural hog like all of us would not do the same as these chief priests. I would not be surprised if we, if we decided if Jesus was interrupting our churches, our temples, our commerce, if we decided that we needed to crank up the machinery of death, the machinery of crucifixion, we must admit that our fear of losing cultural status is stronger than our desire to follow Jesus. We would rather stay in a good place with all the good Americans. We would rather stay in a good place with all of the culturally accommodated Christians because our desire to keep that place of comfort is stronger often than our desire to follow Jesus. We fear for our careers. We fear for our churches. We fear for our comfort. How can we move beyond our fear toward a generosity that is willing, in the words of Bonhoeffer, to pay the cost of discipleship? I have tried and I have failed. I have been faithful. I have been excluded. I have done what was called for in this generosity. And I have done what was easy for me. Jesus's generosity led to his crucifixion. Allow me to read again this text. It says in verse 47, every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people kept looking for a way to kill him. The professional religious wanted to kill him because his kind of table turning drive out the capitalist following of God. His type of table turning drive out the exploiters following of God, interrupted and disrupted who they were. How many of us will continue to take the road that is easy? Because our refusal to embrace this kind of generosity causes the crucifixion of so many of our sisters and our brothers in our exploitative economic situation, in the prison industrial complex, in the carceral state, our refusal to turn over tables in generosity and love for God causes the crucifixion 
of so many. This crucifixion that we see, not only of Jesus, but we see in the present day of so many others made in God's image and likeness. And so this generosity, this generosity that pierces and interrupts life as we know it, it is a confrontational generosity. This generosity is a dangerous generosity, which calls us to risk something in our community, something more than going to church, something more than coffee hours, something more than reading books and studying and praying together. It calls us to risk something more. This kind of generosity, because it is so challenging, so disrupting, it interrupts the very order of the status quo. It requires teaching. The text says every day he was teaching in the temple. We cannot just ask people to do the work of confrontational generosity and dangerous generosity without teaching them. The text says every day Jesus taught in the temple. Jesus was teaching. He was teaching them to think and live a break between the worship of God and exploitation between the worship of God and oppression, that we can worship God and live in community with justice, with fairness, with beauty, deeply abiding by the work and word of spirit. This is the kind of generosity that people crave, kind of generosity that the man who lives in a tent outside of metropolitan craves is not so much our prayers and our food, but a world where housing is a right, the kind of generosity created by our brothers and sisters who work, who care for our city, but who do not earn living wages is not for us to say thank you and to tip them, but to demand a world where living wages, where living wages are right for us all. Our brothers and sisters who are crippled by debt, because of the cost of medical care. Want more than our feeling sorry for them. They want a world where Cadillac healthcare is offered not only to Mitch McConnell, but to those who live in the bowels of white poverty in the state he represents. Text says that the people were spellbound by his teaching because they had never seen nor heard of this kind of confrontational generosity that would kick over the tables that exploit them, this kind of dangerous generosity that may lead even to death, this kind of generosity that kept teaching the break from the norm, from the status quo. In this day, Christ City, we must rethink generosity. The Spirit is moving us here. I do not believe that I'm the only one who feels the prompting of God's spirit. I will no longer let towering theologians interpret texts for me. I have gone back to reading how I read what spirit tells me to read. And his question, Thurman's question of interpretation that led to Jesus' kind of generosity and can lead to 
this kind of generosity in our day. I say that Thurman's question led to Jesus's activity because Thurman's question was Jesus's question, was the question of the prophets. What does God's word, what does Jesus have to say? What does the church have to say? What does Christ's city have to say to those whose backs are against the wall? Jesus saw their backs against the wall of the temple. And he turned over the table of oppression and exploitation. We must be generous enough to follow Jesus, to turn over those tables in our city, in our nation, in our world. We must be generous enough to confront. We must be generous enough to risk danger. We must be generous enough to keep teaching and imagining the new world as it breaks forth. We must be so generous as to welcome all in our sometimes feeble, sometimes faithful attempt to be true to God's inbreaking reign. Christ City, may the Lord of life be with you now and always.